You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. I'm excited this morning. I haven't been able to preach for a while. It's been a a good... uh, session with obviously Pastor Blair and Pastor Greg preaching. I always enjoy it when they preach, uh, but I think they enjoy it when I preach because then they don't have to. So this is good. I'm very excited to be here. And um, as it usually goes with me when I preach, I start thinking about my, my sermon like, you know, a month and a half in advance because I always hope, I always hope that maybe God will will make it easy for me, and I can just like have everything done like two weeks in advance, but it doesn't work like that. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about what I've been going to be saying today, and I didn't want to be distracted, and so Shar uh, and I, we, have been, we had to take a break from watching all the Marvel superhero movies in a row, which is a big deal for me, because I think we have one left out of 23, and so... It's, <laughs> It's been an epic adventure, but so because every time it, I preach, it turns out that I, I start reading the passage, you know, like two months in advance when, you know, Greg gives it to me, and praying about it, and for the first few times that I read it over, it always seems like there's, there's just, you know, there's not much there. There's not much there, you know, maybe a few quick points that I can easily pull out, and I always think to myself, man, this sermon's going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to be quick. I can be done. And you guys can be done here quickly. Not so. But <laughs> then I keep reading it, and I keep praying about it, and I read it some more, and I, then, you know, I, I start to, to dig deeper in it because that, that's, you know, what we should be doing with the Word of God. We should be digging into it, and, and you know, there, there's always, like, the surface layer, but then there's always so much deeper than that. And so, you know, you start to look at, like, the Greek or the Hebrew word definitions about what all the words mean and all that kind of stuff. And this, this is actually where it starts to, I find some interesting things that somehow, that strangely enough, they cross over into the Marvel movie universe. So if you happen to look up the word death in Greek... You know, you're reading through the Bible and you find the word death, and so you hit, you know, Strong's Concordance, and the word for death, you will find that the word is thanatos. Now, if you've done that, and then you can watch all the Marvel movies, a feeling of impending doom should arise when they introduce a character named Thanos. Hmm. Very similar there. And Thanos, bringer of death to the galaxy as revealed to you by Strong's exhaustive Bible concordance. So there, there is crossover there. That's pretty awesome. So anyways, back to the process of how I prepare my sermons. And I start to read all these cross-referencing verses that you find. And you start to read some commentaries. And all of a sudden, you just, you're just introduced and God reveals to you all these different ideas that there's no way I can get across in 23 minutes of sermon. And no, I cannot guarantee that this sermon will be exactly 23 minutes. But it's going to be a good one. One thing I do enjoy, and I hope that you can agree with me on this, is that when you read a verse, and you're praying about it, and then the Holy Spirit, who not only um, you know, influenced and, and made the author write a certain way, but then he opens up a whole new door of insight for us as we're reading it, 
And you find this whole new insight into what this verse or this passage can mean. And it's like finding new treasure in the same spot that you've been digging in for years. And I love that. Especially when you find, you know, new treasure that gives you a new way of looking at God. And perhaps uh, like a fresh way of seeing him. And after you mull it over for a while, you, you again, you realize that, you know, perhaps it's not like this remarkably new piece of theology but it ties directly back into the, the whole character of God. You see it from a whole new angle. And like looking at a diamond from a different viewpoint, you see a, a new sparkle, a new bit of light. And this week, I definitely was brought to appreciate you know, the, the full character of God once again. Throughout the whole Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God's character is shown to us. You know, from the authority we see in Genesis 1 where God speaks and the world shows up to his authority when he tells a dead man to get up onto his feet. And we see God's sense of hearing and his response to us when he hears his people crying out for him when they were slaves in Egypt right up to when Jesus hears the blind man calling out to him, have mercy on me, son of David. He responds. God's compassion for his people as recorded by the prophet Hosea when it seems like he's just crying. God is crying for his people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? I can't execute my burning anger. Right up to when Jesus has compassion on huge crowds of people who seem to him like sheep without a shepherd. And you get the idea. If you've done any reading in the Bible, you do know that the God's character is the same throughout the entire Bible. In every passage, when the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to turn it slightly and to see the light in a slightly new way, it reminds us that the overarching story that is throughout every page of the Bible is God's love and God's justice. And these things so beautifully meet on the cross when Jesus dies. God loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us to meet his justice. God took the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we can experience the full love of God. So that's an, that's an extremely big picture of God's character. So let's keep that fact in our brains, though. God's character does not change throughout the entire Bible. And the prophet Malachi says this, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So let's read some verses in Luke that we're going to think about today, and then we'll make the picture just a little bit smaller, and I'm going to throw some verses in Exodus in there. So without further adieu, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. So if you want to follow along with me on the screen or in your Bibles, that would be great. And it says... After he had finished all his sayings, so you remember he had just finished preaching the the sermon on the plain, and it sounds like he went back to his kind of home base, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole, country, whole of Judea and the whole surrounding country. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you, God, for your word. And I pray, Father, that as we think about it and as I talk, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth that is there. Father God, that we would be conscious and conscientious about listening to you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. And so, as I was reading this, I saw some things that really popped out to me. So that's what I'm going to talk about. And as I looked at the character of God through Jesus, as he interacts with the world and the people around him, and I compared that with the character of God found in verses in the Old Testament, lo and behold, they were the same. I would say it's unbelievable how this happened, but truthfully, it is really believable because it's God. And I just told you that God doesn't change. And so we find in verse, or in Exodus chapter 34, this incredible story of God and Moses um, hanging out together in a cloud. You know how that happens. And God tells Moses his name. All right, so I want to read to you um, Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 to 8. And this is from the NIV. And it This is what it says. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Okay, this is how it ties together with Luke chapter 7. God says in verse 6, in the passage I just read, that part of his name is the compassionate and gracious God. And so John Mark Comer writes about these verses. Compassionate is a feeling word. Yahweh is like a father or even a mother, and we're like his children. A gracious, and gracious is an action word. It means like a parent, God comes to the rescue when his kids need help. I'd recommend you read that whole book called God Has a Name. It's really good. I suppose it's the word compassion in Luke's story that really got me thinking. It says there that Jesus had compassion on the widow. And it doesn't say it, but he shows, definitely, he shows compassion to both the centurion and the slave. Jesus couldn't help but being compassionate and loving toward his children. And because Jesus has the authority and power to do something about the situation in Luke, he could speak action into this situation and change the outcome of the scenarios drastically. Instead of having a sick and dying servant, he was healed. Instead of having a dead son, he came back to life. Because Jesus was compassionate and gracious toward the faith-filled centurion, the slave was completely healed and brought back to health. And because Jesus had compassion on the widow, the son was spoken back to life. The pulpit commentary comments on this, and it says, In this instance, as in so many others, our Lord's miracles were worked, not from a distinct purpose to offer credentials to his mission, but proceeded rather from his intense compassion for human suffering. Let's just, let's just stop and have a side note right there, something that struck me as I was reading. I find it interesting that Jesus you know, sees the widow that has lost her son and has compassion. And it's obviously the, the Jesus thing to do. How, like Jesus couldn't turn away from that, right? But I find it's also kind of foreshadowing, don't you think? Jesus knows that is in a, you know, a short time, maybe a couple years from now, his own mom will see him die. And at that time as well, Jesus takes time and has compassion on his own mom and makes sure that she is well taken care of by entrusting her to the Apostle John. So compassion for the ones that he loves. That's pretty neat. Anyways, what I am saying is that Jesus, in his compassion for the people around him, is just living up to his name that was given to Moses all those years before. Jesus is compassionate. He feels this, like, the, the, you know, the deep in the gut love for his children. You know, for those who are, of us who are parents, you know that feeling. You know, you know the love for your kids is like this inexpressible, like, you know, feeling. While we're talking about God's character found in the whole Bible, let's, let's think about the authority that we see in Jesus. 
The centurion knows about authority, right? It says it kind of outlines his view of authority because he's a soldier. He can tell people what to do, and they do it. And, you know, the Roman army was known for, like, you obey or you die. And so, you know, the soldiers under this centurion followed instinctively what this man said. And he obviously was a good leader. He was well-respected. And also, he had people over top of him that told him what to do, and he followed. That's how it all worked. And so he knew what authority was. He knew what it would, so he understood what it meant to be called Lord. All right, he knew what that meant. He calls Jesus Lord because he has faith that Jesus has greater authority than him, which was true. Now, for us to read this 2,000 years later, after the fact, it should come as no surprise that Jesus can heal someone from a distance without seeing the person and without actually saying that this person is healed. There's, it, it, at least it doesn't record it in this story that Jesus said, your slave will be healed. He just makes, it, makes this comment and they go home and they find him healed. It shouldn't surprise us because we know that the big picture of God's character, of God's authority. Jesus is the same God who says in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light. <laughs> it shouldn't surprise us that God talks to a dead man. Young man, I say to you, arise. And he sits up instantly. It doesn't take time. It doesn't take, you know, a few minutes for us to set in. It's just bang. He's alive again. It shouldn't be surprising to us that death knows the voice of God and knows when to back down. It knows when it's been beaten. Can you imagine that, though? First, for the centurion to, you know, he sends friends out to meet with Jesus to give him this message and then to see a bit later on his beloved slave just gets out of bed well again. And then secondly, for the villagers of Nain to be in, uh, in full-on funeral and mourning and weeping mode and to feel such horrible loss for this widow and this son. And then they see this rabbi, this man walking up and, and he, <laughs> he goes and talks to a dead person. <laughs> and then the dead person gets up and goes and gives his mom a hug. It's unbelievable, but it is believable because it's God's character throughout the whole Bible. So let's think about one more point of God's big picture character. Consider that Jesus was willing to enter into the house of a Gentile centurion. He didn't have to, but it sounds like he was about to, or he would have. He would have been more than willing to go into this house, although it would make him ceremonially unclean. Consider that Jesus interrupted a funeral and touched the plank of wood that carried this dead man, which would have made him ceremonially unclean. And consider that Jesus regularly touched the sick. He regularly touched the leprous people as he healed them. Now this is something that I would guess that a a righteous Pharisee would never do. 
They wanted to keep themselves pure. They wanted to keep themselves clean, away from the filth, so that there would be nothing stopping them from communing with God. But Jesus thought nothing of pure and simply having compassion on sick people and touching people with care, not really minding becoming unclean. Truly, this ties into the huge narrative of the whole Bible in which God the Father sends his Son into the world to be close to us, to get his hands dirty in the mess of our lives. Tim McConnell, a blogger that I found, puts it this way, God has always sought relationship with us, his people. He came down to where the sin problem is to become one of us, to suffer with us, to be tempted like us, to experience life as we do, to feel as we do, and do all this without sinning as an example for us to follow. Through Jesus, we have a God who is not abstract, who is willing to get his hands dirty with our brokenness in order to rescue us from destroying ourselves. God is compassionate. God has authority And God is willing to get into the dirtiness of our lives. And so how do we respond to these things? And that's the big question. I think whenever we read something in the Bible, it demands that we respond. It demands a response from us. Because if we don't, we just walk away unchanged by God. Now, if you want a, want a book to walk away from unchanged, I would recommend you read Twilight. I've never read it, but I've heard it's, it's, it's wonderful. So. <laughs> so that's a good book to read if you just want to stay the same. But if you want to change, read the Bible, because that demands us to respond to it somehow. And so let's look at the response of these people in the two scenes that Luke outlines for us this morning. And the centurion's response to Jesus coming to his house seems to be one of humility, right? The Jewish leaders and elders say that he's worthy. But then as Jesus gets closer to the house, the centurion sends out another delegation of his friends with a message for Jesus. And this is what he says. The centurion says through these messengers to God to Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then it goes on to say that Jesus marvels at this man's faith. He is surprised by this centurion's faith. He tells the people that are with him that he's never seen such faith before. So what can we learn from this man's faith that is so marvelous? You know, I think obviously if Jesus thinks that something is marvelous, if he sees this man has marvelous faith, then it's worth imitating. Even though his friends thought of him as a good man, the centurion knew that he was not worthy of Jesus' presence. But in spite of that, he understood that Jesus could help him with just a word. 
Charles Spurgeon once preached about this centurion, and he said, He was empty indeed, having nothing of his own, not worthy to receive, much less indulging a thought of giving anything to Christ, and yet confident that all things are possible with the Master, and that he both can and will do according to our faith, and that in, the manner, that in a manner gloriously unveiling his kingly power. The centurion's comments highlight a bigger truth here. None of us, absolutely none of us, are truly worthy or deserving of God's grace. No matter what good deeds we have done, they all stack up to nothing in our quest to truly earn God's love. If we even think for a second that we can get out of the pit of our sin by ourselves, if we think our lives are salvageable by ourselves and by the things we can do, we are not grasping the worth of God's grace for us. When Paul said that he was the chief of all sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15, he was saying that in his own eyes he was the worst of all sinners. He was totally unworthy of any of God's love. But yet, as Paul again writes in Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus saw us in our desperate need, and he came and he died for us to bring us salvation and peace and grace. We are all unworthy of the love of God, but because of this knowledge that we are absolutely nothing without God's grace, it makes us know the worth of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Spurgeon again says, you are not worthy that Christ should come to you. <laughs> you are not worthy to draw near to Christ. But, and here is this glorious contrast, never let this for a single moment interfere with your full belief that he who is God, but who took our, our nature, that he who suffered in our stead upon the cross, that he who now rules in the highest heavens is able to do for you and willing to do for you exceeding abundantly above what you even ask or even think. Your inability does not prevent the working of his power. Your unworthiness can put not put chains to his bounty or limits to his grace. And there it is. The knowledge of his unworthiness or in the knowledge of his unworthiness, the centurion still believed that Jesus could heal. He believed that Jesus' mercy did not hinge on his own actions, but simply because Jesus was full of compassion. And so let us remember that, that in no way we can earn God's compassion and mercy, so let's not even try Instead, accept with humility, as the centurion did, that we are without hope, without Jesus, and we simply need to accept the full measure of God's grace in our lives. And so when we get to the second story here, and Jesus has just spoken to a dead man and called him back from death, I just, that's, that's incredible. I would like to see that. 
we don't get to see the reaction of the mother, right? It is, it's not recorded, her immediate reaction, but we can probably imagine, right? It was immense tears of joy as her son, healthy and alive again, ran toward her. Wow. But it does tell us that, you know, in, when, we were, when they were looking at the whole village, fear seized them all. And they all glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Can you imagine the story that was told by those villagers for the rest of their lives? Can you imagine the, the, <laughs> the mother warning her alive again son every time he did something a bit dangerous? Don't die again. Be careful. We don't know where Jesus is this time. <laughs> I think that'd be funny. <laughs> the result of this was that the whole village, the whole village of Nain, glorified God for the new life that was revealed to them, that was started in this young man again. And they worshipped, and they realized that God had visited his people. I don't think they fully realized how true that was, you know, that Jesus was Emmanuel, that God was with them. But they still worshipped. And then what did they do? They went and told everyone in the whole country, everyone around them, what had happened. And as you can imagine, news of a dead man coming back to life would, would probably spread pretty quick. They started telling the good news of new life to the people around them. So let's put all these things together then. The centurion's response was to have faith that Jesus could save and that he would save. And the villagers praised God and told others about the amazing deeds of Jesus. Let us do the same. So the band can come back up. As we take communion today, let us remember that we celebrate the moment when God's character all came together. God's compassion and love for us. God's willingness to come and make himself dirty for us so that we can be clean. God's authoritative voice saying to death, no, you have no power here. As we worship in response to God's great compassion for us, I want to remind you and challenge you that it is a proper response to tell others of what God has done for you and for the people around us. So be thankful and be vocal about God's great love, which you have experienced. Let's pray. God, again, we, we come to you thankful for what you have done. God, we thank you that you do not change, that your love never fails, that you are always faithful, even when we are not faithful to you. God, thank you that in in our brokenness and our dirtiness, you reached out and you, you came to us. 
And God, with, with the authority that you have, that you declared over us, cleanliness. God, thank you that we can be clean, that we can be pure in you. And Father God, I pray that we would have faith that even though we have nothing, that you have given us everything. God, I pray that we would be willing and able to share that good news with other people and just simply tell people what you have done for us. Holy Spirit, please lead us and guide us as we live our lives with this great story in us of what you have done for us. And I pray that you would give us the courage to speak that to the people that we come into contact with. And so God, as we worship you right now in response, I pray, Father, that you would, you would guide us. And Lord, that if there, if there is anything that needs to be dealt with in our hearts, I pray that you would do that and that we would respond to you. In your name we pray, amen.